This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand On Air. To find more local content, go to our website, accessradiotaranaki.com. Good morning, New Zealand. Welcome to all my listeners at Access Radio Taranaki, Coast Access Radio, Radio Horseplay, and our Radio Masterton. And I'm your host, Neville Wallace, broadcaster from half for the next 30 minutes. Firstly, a word of caution my first interview with Dave Ratcliffe contains references to killing deer, so please be aware. Today, I have three guests Dave Ratcliffe, Barbara Currier, and Philip Duncan. Just lately, there's been a couple of helicopter pilots who have died, but during their time, they've contributed much to the deer farming industry. With me today is Dave Ratcliffe, recounting his days spent with helicopter pilot Dave Saxton, flying out venison and possum skins. Well, my guest today is Dave Ratcliffe, who used to do a lot of deer stalking like myself and was in the lower parts of New Zealand, mainly the South Island, and also a bit in the North Island, but before we get on to the uh, deer venison recovery, there was a lot of money being made and a lot of possums around. Could you tell the listeners a bit about the possums in those days, Dave? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, that was when I first got into possums, when I went with yeah. And he used to sell to the Smith Brothers from Taranaki. Oh, good Lord, yeah. And... Um, yeah, well, I sold for them for years after that. So, where, whereabouts were you killing possums, should we say? Oh, yeah, we were doing them all around the roads, around Tamanui, because it's a lot of bush country around there. And and as I said, Dave's brother was a boss of the Maori Affairs, Dick Saxton, and he used to jack up these farms for Dave to catch possums on. Ah, uh, yeah. So... How long were you doing in the possum business, uh, Dave? Well, I, I, I did it for years and years after that, but I only did that season and, and I started the next season with Sax and because he bought the jet boat up and he ended up going back down, down to Papariki. Oh, yeah. And he worked on the Wanganui River. <clears throat> so you, you, you've known Dave Saxton for some time then? Oh, yeah, he used to come and see me every year. And when I shot my hunter, he flew over one day and he tried to get me to go back and work with him. And we doing the pike one week and the hunt on the next week and everything. But I was a bit dubious about flying with him because he never had the, never had the hours up. And he didn't have a very good plane either. We would have had an airworthiness ticket, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, but it was a bloody old Oster. They, were, they, they could take off. Um, they could land short, but they needed more room to take off. Ah, oh, sounds like they didn't have the power. Yeah, that's right. And and, and George White had a doctor, and he was flying carcasses out of um, out of the upper pike for Ian Dobson when he crashed in the Harris Saddle. So, uh, what was uh, flying conditions like in those? Like, I mean, I've been down there and was down there a little while back, but you wouldn't. We never got up to see any. Mountains, because it was just in a low cloud all the way. What was Westland further down like then? Oh, no, she was pretty bad too, especially in the places 
there were some of those saddles you could downdraft and they'd in them all the time. And um, where the Appleflake airstrip was, there was a saddle coming across from from um, Skipper's Creek, they called it. And during the middle of the day, you used to get a sea breeze coming through there. And he used to always get a downdraft coming through the saddle and the planes would come up the strip and they'd hit the downdraft. Oh, yeah. And you'd, you'd see their wheels would bloody near touch the metal on the other side, you know, on the other side of the river. Yeah. He used to give them the heebie-jeebies, I can tell you. <laughs> and, of course, I suppose they'd be laden to the gunnels with venison, wouldn't they? They'd be a thousand pound on board, most of them. Oh, that's near a ton, isn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah. So, uh, down there, which was that creek that you mentioned? Because the one I was going to mention to you was the barrier, because that would give me my bearings as to where you were, was that further down towards Alabaster? Yeah, well, the, the airstrip where George Wyman built on the hut was just above Lake Alabaster, yeah, before you, you just between Alabaster and the Olivine. Oh, yeah, because uh, after my first trip down there, I wasn't going to, just about giving up deer stalking after that accident that we had down there, but we went back on uh, sixty. Four, and the uh, pilot that took us in there, he flew us into the barrier. That's right. Well, the barrier had this trip higher up. Yeah, well, that's where this one was. And uh, actually, that time, John Reardon had uh, built a bit of a log hut up there, Dave. Yeah, that's right. I've got a photo of it. Have you? Yep. Oh, I've got a few pictures of that. You... Wouldn't have any pictures of that memorial to the friend that was killed down there. No, he was a, he was a brother, was he? To the juggle reared, was he? He was, yes, yeah. No, I haven't got a photo of the memorial because, but I knew it was there. Ah, uh, yeah. I'd, when we went down in '63, it was there. It was set up at was just a slab of concrete. Yeah, that right. But have you talked to anybody in latter years at all, Dave, because I had a friend call in that said we couldn't land an aircraft up there, we had to go up by helicopter, the uh, river had changed course. Up, 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 um... Up the barrier. Where the barrier, where the barrier is? yeah. I don't know. I haven't been in there since 1974. Oh, no. No, yeah, right. But I've looked, I've looked at the Google, Google map there, and all the grass flats on the barrier down the bottom are all been washed away. It's only metal now. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's all been really flooded down there. Oh, and but there's a joke that lives on the Alabaster Strip called Bruce Ray. He'd been living there for quite a few years. He used to do eels there. And he's pretty knowledgeable about what goes on up and down that river now. Oh, yeah. Well, we've digressed a tad there. Now, when you were on that river, what were the deer numbers like? Because uh, they were competing with, uh, I can't think, that early pioneer that farmed the place, Davy Gunn. Oh, the deer numbers were quite high in the pike. I think about 1,200 deer a year used to come out of the pike in Lake Matero. Oh, yeah. 
that shot by ground shooters, just not talking about the helicopters, the helicopters that take, oh, they've taken another um, six or seven hundred out of there, I'd say. Oh, yeah. So when, yeah, I'm just sort the of... Chopper, the choppers used to get between 130 and 150 a day. That was a figure I was sort of thinking, what would number would the chopper need to make it pay for itself? Oh, I think they used to be averaging close to 10 deer an hour. Ooh. Now, did you ever shoot from a chopper? Yeah, I did. What sort I of... Shot from, I shot from about, about four or five different choppers. Oh, yeah. Now, was it just the old... Bolt action SMLE, or did you have a? No, I used I used a Sigmates at the time. Tell us about that rifle. What was it? Was it a semi-automatic? Yeah, it's a semi-automatic Swedish Army rifle. Ah, right. We used to have twenty-shot mags. Ah, right. We used to have a box here with about ten or twelve of them in there. Ah, yeah. So, what sort of? Well, would you be up? Above the bush line, wouldn't you, or would you down yeah, on Yeah, no, most, most of it was shot above the bush line and the tussock and everything because the only time you had to shoot around the creeks that slipped is when the fog was right down. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what sort of money was the venison fetching? Well, when I went on the choppers, it was down to 40 cents a pound, but it was up to a dollar before that. Yeah. Well, when did it hit two dollars? A kilo, Dave? Uh, well, yeah, well, I don't know, but it went to a dollar a pound in about 1973. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. <clears throat> then at Christmas at 73, it crashed. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't worth ground shooting because you had to run jet boats and fuel and all that sort of stuff. Oh, so yes. I, I went and got a job on the choppers then. Right. Do you ever keep a tally of what you shot from that, those choppers at all, Dave, or not? No, not really, but we used to average about eight deer an hour most of the time. <laughs> and did you notice a drop in numbers by the time you'd sort of done a year or two at that? Oh, yeah, the numbers dropped away, especially in the open country. Ah, yeah, yeah. What about the chamois and tar? Did you ever have a... Crack it I shot a lot. I shot quite a lot of chamois. Oh yeah. I never shot tar, but I never, I, I never shot. I, we used to get quite a lot of chamois around North Canterbury, around St James Station, and those that country. Oh yeah, yeah. And I saw in uh, Sack's book that he captured a few of those. They looked as though they're alive, being tied up and netted or something. Oh, the chamois? Yeah, well, tar as well, I think. Yeah, they used to sell them to the game, the safari parks. Ah, right. Oh, I see. So, if you had a bit of knowledge about that, how, yeah, well, well, how well did those animals survive that shock of being captured and then trusted up and then carted around? Oh, they let them go on these back of these stations too, see? Oh, yeah. And that other joke you're going to rig up that Ray Finn, well, he worked on that live capture of those, those trophy animals too. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. Ray was also a guide on one of those safari parks. Oh, yeah. One, right. one called Glenroy at Queenstown. Oh, yeah. 
But I got involved with it and, and I set up a business up here and I, I was in it for about 20 odd years doing safari hunts. Oh, yeah. But, but ours was mainly fair chase, uh, free range. Oh, yeah. It, it was bloody difficult too because, you know, the animals had just about been wiped out with 1080 and helicopters and name it. So, catching up to today, I just see a lot of reports and I've got friends that have got farms and they're saying that they're getting a lot of deer coming back. Yeah, that's happening everywhere. There's deer numbers building up all over the place. So you wouldn't sort of be happy about the new firearms regulations? And No, I don't, I don't like it at all. I think the whole thing's been a bloody fast, actually. Because uh, there's not going to be a hell of a lot of good, keen men out there to keep the numbers down. No, I think they're going to have problems here. They're going to have problems because the choppers are up here shooting them and leaving them to rot now. Oh, I like that, is it? Because you, yeah. you won't run a chopper for nothing to when you're not getting anything for it, are you? No, well, I know down, down Kaiiki behind Oponga, I think they shot about 1,500 there last year and they never picked up any of them. Good Lord. Not a fellow deer there too, see? Oh, yeah. Well, that's been a very interesting account of some of your time, Dave. No, that's all good. You're all on the move, so I'd say thank you, Dave Ratcliffe, for sharing your deer hunting memories with me. Go well, my friend, and you have a very Merry Christmas too. Yeah, thanks for that. Cheers. Cheers. Philip Duncan reminds us that there is a possibility of an El Nino, but there are signs it may not eventuate. Good morning, Philip Duncan. What do you make of the El Nino predictions, which sounds a bit like the uh, forthcoming government announcements? And uh, I can't forget that Doris Day has sang a song called Que Sera Sera, which means what will be will be. Well, yeah, yeah, that's a great song. Um, oh, yeah, it's a funny time at the moment, isn't it? Everything's kind of not doing what we expect. It's all a bit odd. I saw a great... Um, well, we put out a tweet yesterday, and it said, or the other day, and it just simply said, um, hey, Siri, can you describe to me a, a picture of what um, the opposite of El Nino looks like? You know, Siri being the, the iPhone voice. Oh. And it was because the rainfall map for the next 15 days around New Zealand and Australia does not look like El Nino. Maybe a little bit over the South Island, but the North Island at all of Australia... If someone showed me the rain map for the next 15 days, I would tell them, oh, it's either La Nina or it's something in spring. Like we've got a, yeah, we're in a spring, early spring weather pattern. So it's an unusual one at the moment. Now that doesn't mean La Nina, it doesn't mean that El Nino doesn't exist. We can have both things going on. And that is what we're having. We're seeing warmer than average conditions at the equator, which is uh, on the um, eastern side of the Pacific out towards Ecuador and South America. It's much warmer than average, and there's different types of cloud that they measure along the equator as well. So once the cloud cover and the temperatures match up, that is called El Nino. But all the way down here in New Zealand, a long way from where we measure all that, it's hard to know if that is um, always going to be our guidance for weather. And we've certainly seen over the last couple of months hints of El Nino. We've had, you know, 
We've had wind records broken in October. We had temperature records broken in September, and I believe again now in November, as far as heat is concerned. So we've got some elements of El Nino, but the rainfall is the part that's not quite behaving the way everyone thought it might. And so for now, um, I think it's a good thing that El Nino is broken. If it stays this way throughout summer, we won't have a drought, but we'll get some good, hot, dry, sunny days in there as well. So I think people should be happy, but um, still prepared that it could swing very dry as we go into next year. It is still possible that that could happen. Well, that's all life, particularly with farming goes. You've just got to be aware that things could change drastically. Yeah, I mean, we get farmers saying, well, you guys said it would be a drought and it would be hot. Now, I don't know what the other forecasters said, but I certainly didn't say that would happen. What I said was El Nino encourages more westerlies, more high pressure around our part of the world. But it's not a weather forecast. It's more like a personality. It means at the end of the next six months, I think we'll notice temperatures were above normal and we had windier weather and probably those windiest days were from the west. And so far, that's actually what we've had. It's just that in the all the other days in between, it felt like a normal spring. And so that's, uh, that's a sign that the high pressure zones have not quite lined up the way they would in a textbook El Nino, and I'm putting that down to climate change, and I know people hate that as an answer to things, even I do, but this is likely what it is. It's that extra little bit of warmth is breaking the El Nino weather pattern this time around, and I think we should be very happy about that. It's a, it's a silver lining, not a, bad, not a bad thing. No, it's not, but when you talk about nature like that, uh, you ponder at times whether the Icelandic um, ice cap is going to pop up one of these days. It's cracking. Yeah, dramatic, isn't it, That uh, seeing that stuff? And, I mean, that's a good example of what the world is always doing. If you could take a view of every eruption like that one in Iceland and the Tongan eruption, or even just the last hundred and something years in New Zealand where we saw Hawke's Bay, Napier, have a massive earthquake in the 19, uh, 1930, was it? 1929, yeah. around then. Yeah. Uh, that was so big, it emptied out the entire harbour, and the harbour has now got an airport on it. And then we recently had the Kaikoura earthquake and the Christchurch earthquake, which both did similar things. So if you take those earthquakes, you fast-forward them a 1,000 years, suddenly New Zealand looks very different in a very, very short amount of time. So I like to mention that because you've got a country like Australia that's barely changed for thousands of years, and then you've got our country that is always evolving, just like Iceland and anywhere where there's mountains, really. And so our weather patterns and the ground beneath us is always changing. It is never ever going to be like it was a 100 years ago at any point in time. It will always be changing. But I think it's pretty clear that things are changing rapidly. Um, but the positive, as I keep saying to farmers, I know you've got to be prepared for a drought, but this is, that's the tough world of farming. It's, it's not crystal clear. And if it was that easy, everyone would be doing it. And, you know, it takes a skill set to, to kind of read the leaves, get that feeling in your gut instinct. Is it, is it getting as dry as what the forecasters were saying? And if it's not, could the forecasters still be right? Could it suddenly get dry in summer? And should I still be, you know, aware of that? That's all we're trying to do. I don't like giving people fear of God for no for no fun at all. You know, it's, it's um, you, if you're going to worry people, you've got to have real facts around it. And I think I'd even defend Niwa with what they were saying about El Nino. Although they do tend to do the big sort of hot and dry, hot and dry headline, and um, yeah. that does bug me. 
And just to finish off with Philip, how's that app coming along that people can find out for the weather in their own backyard? Well, I am really hopeful that next week when we talk, I'll be able to actually give you the launch date. Um, I'm nervously, nervously waiting for my developer to, uh, or I should say anxiously waiting for my developer to give me the, the all clear. It's ready to be launched. Um, we're aiming for the first week of December at this stage. So whether that is the 1st of December or something like the 7th, you know, at the other end, I'm not quite sure yet, but hopefully early December, unless there's one other sort of any other hiccups, but it, um, I, I cannot see any any reason why it wouldn't be uh, in the month of December. So hopefully it's only just a couple more weeks away. And, yeah, it's free. It's a free download. It's an upgrade from the free one we've got now, which is being finished. And um, there'll be paid tier options as well. If you need to get those alerts, if, if knowing, you know, if the wind or temperatures or rain is going to reach a certain threshold on your property, this app will be for you. And it's being endorsed by NetService as well. So having their support makes a real difference to us uh, going out there with our confidence level. Well, well done. Keep up the good work. And thank you, Philip Duncan. Thank you very much. Barbara Kuriger is very pleased that the new government has been formed and is raring to get back to work. Plus, she is very pleased with her new electric car. Now that the future of Parliament has been decided and announced, good morning, Barbara. Yeah, good morning. It's uh, it's a bit it was a bit, a bit of a momentous day yesterday because um, you know the waiting was now over. I think a big part of the waiting was the fact that we had to wait three weeks for the special votes because people can enrol on election day. So I think that'll probably be looked into on, in due course because it just does hold up things. The actual negotiation was sort of like a bit under three weeks, which for three parties probably hasn't been too unexpected. And, uh, yeah, it's just good to have a government in place because uh, I've got a lot of things that I'm going, when we get a government and when the minister, when we have a minister and when the minister is sworn in, had their briefing, got their staff, got their feet under the table, I'll take this to the minister. So now we're actually at least starting the process of being able to get something done and I'm looking forward to getting back to Parliament. Um, it's due to start on the 5th of December is my understanding at this present point in time. And as I said to someone, you know, we finished Parliament on the 31st of August uh, to go out and run an election campaign, and, you know, that's pretty much uh, three months out. And while it's been fantastic to be in the electorate, and it's been even more fantastic to be in the electorate after the election because, you know, you just actually do a lot of um, neat community stuff. It just feels it's time to actually go back into that big house and uh, get stuck into some work because one doesn't work without the other. You're a community representative and part of the community, uh, which is absolutely work that I love and half of it doesn't feel like work uh, but then you have to take what you've picked up from your community and represent in Wellington and so it just does feel like a long long time since we've been there and I'm chomping at the bit and ready to go so at least we'll get three solid weeks in before we go uh, off for maybe a, a four week break at Christmas time uh, rather than the eight week break that we had last year which I don't think we need another eight week uh, off Parliament because we really need to get some jobs done. So yeah um, it's been also a big week for me. Uh, Neville I've picked up uh, my Volkswagen uh, electric car. Uh, we said to the dealers if you can find me a car that will do 500k 
um, I'll be interested. And um, it's been, um, I've taken it through the electorate now, and um, it was a shame actually taking it through on a really, really hot day where there was tar melting, and I'm thinking, no, my new car. Um, but that's just a bit of the state of our roads at the moment, and um, we just need to get some serious work done on those. But, yeah, no, it's great. It's got a 500k range, and it's a bit like um, any car. If you forget to put petrol in it, it won't go, and if you forget to charge it, it won't go. And so each night we just charge it up, ready to go for the next day, and um, there's lots of charges around the electorate. Some of the more far-reaching places uh, I'll just have to be doubly prepared, uh, and that's fine. Happy to do that. And people said to me, you know, oh, what about when you go to Wangamomana? And I go, well, have you seen the sign that says 150k, no petrol? You know, <laughs> in other words, be prepared because no car goes without its fuel. So I'm pretty excited because what I decided was that if I couldn't prove that I could get around my very large rural electorate in an electric car, then no one else was going to do it. So if it's going to be, it's up to me, I think is the saying that um, comes from uh, some uh, quote that I can't remember. Sorry, who made it? Um, yeah, I've also had a really good week. Um, I've been down to the Agri-Women's Development Trust graduations in Wellington and saw 14 women who have been through a program and a series of modules and uh, come out at the other end on their leadership journey. Um, I think this is now about the, I think it was about the 12th course that they've done. It was started by a woman called Lindy Nelson and uh, just always fascinated to see the women that turn out of there and what they go on to do because they come out very well prepared. Uh, and then yesterday, a big a big day in Tikawiti. So for quite a number of years, there's been a committee working on uh, a legends display and they've got a series now of six uh, po which sit in Tikawiti, uh, each with pictures of six legends to date. Uh, two of them are still alive. And so um, we started off with Dame Rangi Marie uh, Hetit. Uh, interestingly enough, Jim Bolger gave her uh, Damehood when she was about 100 years of age, uh, he told me yesterday, uh, and she is the oldest person that's ever become a dame, so I thought that was rather interesting. Uh, so she was the first one. She was a, a very good weaver and well-known for her craft. Uh, and then uh, there was Les Munro, who was a dam buster, who uh, became the... Uh, the mayor of Tikawiti for about 15 years in a period of time back in history. Uh, so uh, we had him. We had um, Colin Meads, of course. Uh, everyone would know Colin Meads. Uh, Stan was there, and, you know, a lot of the family members from all these people were there, so Colin would have been proud to see that uh, going up in Tikawiti. Uh, Koro Wetari uh, was another one, and, uh, you know, his, his history in Parliament as well as... Um, as the Right Honourable Jim Bolger was there. So each of those uh, made a big political contribution in their time. Uh, and it was good to have um, the Right Honourable Jim Bolger there actually um, unveiling his. Uh, we had a really good conversation and it was quite good to be able to stand up and say, I'm here today representing the government. I couldn't have done that yesterday because we didn't have one. <laughs> um, and then the, the other one uh, was Sir David Fagan and, of course, you know, his... 
his shearing feats just stack up one on top of the other, on top of the other, on top of the other. Um, he's been a brilliant advocate for rural sports, and I worked very closely with him on that front. Uh, it was nice to meet his 98-year-old mother too, who's made a wonderful contribution um, in the King Country. So, um, yeah, all in all, it was um, a really good uh, day. Neville Lewis and I then came back and wandered up the street of Te Awamutu in the rain where they closed the street off to have um, a big Black Friday event. Um, still kind of asking ourselves, um, you know, Black Friday is one of those things that sort of Americanised things that's taken off in New Zealand, um, but it was good to see bouncy castles and various other things there for the kids. But Black Friday these days seems to last for about two weeks. And everyone's going, do your Black Friday shopping, and you seem to be able to do it any day for two weeks. So I really don't know what it's got to do with Friday. But anyway, the community had a bit of fun. So that's, uh, it's been a good week. Oh, thank you for that, Barbara. And remember to be careful driving in a car park with that bloody electric car. I get trapped every time. Oh, People right. People okay. can't hear you. Oh, no, mine actually makes a noise up to 40k. Ah, right. Oh. Yeah, it makes a little whir on the outside yeah. until you get up to 40k and then that stops. Well, that's my luck for today. Remember where to tune in next week and we'll talk to you again. Sayonara. This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand On Air. To find more local content, go to our website, accessradiotaranaki.com.